Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. The goal of the Res Talk podcast is to communicate some late breaking news and thoughtful insights about a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders in this ResNet ecosystem. Now, whether you're a consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you want to hear more about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. To the ResNet community, this is the way we wish to engage and hear you and feed you with information that we think is most important. I'm your host, Bill Spohn, and I've worked in the HVACR and building performance markets for almost 30 years and been interfacing with the team at ResNet for nearly that whole time. If you like what you heard today, you've not yet subscribed to the podcast, consider doing so by typing ResTalk, that's R-E-S-T-A-L-K, into the search bar, into any podcast app. This way you'll get all the episodes as soon as they launch. You can also listen in your browser by following the links at resnet.us slash professional. Speaking of thoughtful topics, today we're going to hear from C.R. Hero, who's the Vice President of Energy Efficiency and Sustainability at Meritage Homes. He's going to share with us some of his very intense and informative perspectives on the gaps that exist between the way average buyers buy and experts like building performance experts who can make choices about the homes they live in and how they buy. One insightful takeaway that I took from this is his definition of building science, and that's stopping the uncontrolled movement of energy. I think that's a great way to look at things, and any building science professionals out there will probably find that interesting too. Sierra discusses such broad-ranging topics as the international landscape and home performance, where we'll glean some insights into what could or should be happening in the USA, as well as how home automation needs to tie into building performance trends. His unique background of study in philosophy, environmental engineering, and business sheds fresh light on these new topics, and actually some old topics too. So listen in and let's to our discussion with C.R. Hero, who's Vice President of Energy Efficiency and Sustainability at Meritage Homes, and see what he has to say about how building performance experts choose homes. Welcome, C.R. Glad to have you here. Hi, Bill. I'm glad to be here. Perfect. Thanks. So that's a very interesting topic. And we were chatting a little bit before this recording started. We're talking about the gap. How do you define the gap? The gap is the difference between the way an average buyer chooses a product and the way an expert would choose a product. And when I think about that, I think a lot about fundamental marketing and this guy named Abram Maslow who talked about a hierarchy of needs. And a lot of really great marketing is done to inspire consumers to choose better. But the problem is, is if you look at the hierarchy of needs, the first thing you have to do is make them feel safe. And then you have to give them what they want. And then tertiary, you can then inspire them to get what an expert would choose. And so I I think a big gap in empowering and enabling consumers to choose the best home is very much been around, do consumers have the tools that an expert would to make the best choice? And the answer is sadly no. And I think the HERS score and a lot of the consumer education is the first of a really important step in empowering consumers to make decisions like an expert would. Because if you talk to a builder, if you talk to a building scientist, if you talk to somebody in the industry, they buy very different than the average 36-year-old mother of three. Absolutely. I'm actually in that mode right now. We're building a new home next year. And 
it's interesting being a consumer and quote unquote expert too. I guess I'm an expert enough to be dangerous. And perhaps there's a lot of us out there. So these support the tools, you talk about the HERS score, are there are other tools out there, other means of communication to close this gap? Yeah, my focus is really on three legs of the stool, and it's really come into prominence since California adopted the new 2020 Title 24, which requires new homes to include solar. Because as an expert, I actually know that that was a fiduciary smart decision, but I also know that a consumer could do the exact wrong thing because it wasn't enabled in the right way, which means it didn't have these three things to enable consumers to make better choices. And the way to think about it is, as an expert, I would put in better insulation and better windows and renewable energy because it lowers my total cost of owning that home. But buyers buy on first cost. They understand what the price tag of a home is. And unfortunately, that leads a lot of people to choosing cheap windows, cheap insulation, no renewable energy. And you get a home that has a low price tag, but has a really high total cost because of the cost of heating and cooling and maintenance and all the things that go along with settling for code-built, low-cost amenities. And the three things that I think can really change the market and enable consumers to choose a better total cost model is one is labeling. Ensure that consumers know total cost. And I think the HER score is a really important vehicle for differentiating bananas and apples and oranges, which is a home that's a HERS 170 or a HERS 100 or a HERS 42 innately is built differently, functions differently, and it has a different total cost. So labeling a home, when you buy a home in France, not only do they give you the price of the home, they give you an energy score so you can anticipate what's it actually going to cost to live in that home year after year. So I think that's the bedrock to consumers and their influencers, right? Realtors and the other people they look to as experts in the field to help differentiate the best value. It's the way we buy shoes. It's the way we buy milk. And it's almost shameful that the industry hasn't adopted a consistent standard and that that her scores are still voluntary because... I would never let my grandma accidentally buy a HERS 140 house, but my friends do all the time. Let's back up a little bit and get some background on you. You're very well spoken on this issue. Where did you come from? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a crazy, unemployable scientist. So I'm a biologist, a chemist, an engineer, and a philosopher. So I look at a lot of things to try to figure out how they work. And I'm fortunate enough to have worked for the last 25 years in corporations to help them change their culture around adopting new standards. So I'm currently the vice president of innovation for Meritage Homes, the seventh largest home builder in the U.S. And for the last 10 years, I've been spending my CEO's money to make the world a little bit better, but more importantly, to help him differentiate his product in the marketplace with the superior product that people, when they're inspired, purposely choose a Meritage Home over a less thoughtful home. You very graciously share with me your LinkedIn profile, and I saw that common theme of environmental awareness and scientific study and action in there all the way through. Tell me a little bit more about Meritage. Why were they interested in hiring you? What got them going? So if you think about the time, 10 years ago when I started with Meritage was the bottom of the housing crisis. And at that time, most large home builders were struggling with the fact that the average consumer was seeing their brand new better than homes comparable to some of these distressed bank resales that have been gutted without cabinets. And everybody was just looking at price per square foot. 
And two things happened is one is they recognized that a new home could never compete on a price per square foot basis with a resale home. And two, it shouldn't, that there is significant value when you're a home builder and understanding, hey, there's brand new appliances and better lighting and better insulation and better functionality in a new home. Why don't the average consumers perceive that? And I was kind of brought in under that auspice of, can we adopt best practices to truly substantively be a better value? And then can we affect that change? Can we help with the marketing and the sales and the consumer awareness to inspire better consumers and inspire better decision-making? And so I kind of have these two hats of being a building scientist, but also working closely with our sales and marketing to help drive the marketplace. And it inevitably means I spend a lot of time working with other home builders because there is this synergy of the more builders and the more trades and the more suppliers that build beyond requirements that that adopt these voluntary standards, the more cost-effective it becomes, the more that realtors and appraisers and underwriters hear about these differentiations that create mechanisms for the the process of purchasing a home to recognize that value. And the more the average consumer starts hearing that, just like they hear on HGTV, that there's more to a house than stainless steel appliances and brown glass backsplashes. So it becomes an industry initiative to inspire the consumers to evolve, just like new cars are built with more comprehensive Bluetooth functionality and better backup cameras and more safety zones. A new home is built with better things, and it's designed that way to inspire consumers to come back in the marketplace and upgrade their life. It almost sounds like a philosophical problem to solve. You talked about that going back to the new cars, backup cameras. I always had this analogy in mind that when I rent a car, like I did last week at the Habitat X conference, it had some really nice new features in it. It made me think about my next car and those features I purchased. But it came through this being able to experience these features. How do you connect that? Because it seems like the experience to the perception of value is really what resonates with the consumer. Is that correct? Would you say that's true? Yeah, it is the bane of my existence and you're poking a hard nerve, which is, (laughs) I know it's wonderful because you're being very succinct on the problem. Once you experience better, once you're inspired and your life is improved, that drops to a need. And so once consumers understand the availability of a more comfortable home, a healthier home, a quieter home, a home that costs less to heat and cool, then it's really difficult for them to allow and to purchase a dirtier home, a noisier home, a home that costs more to heat and cool, a less healthy home. And that is always the challenge. But look where it happens in the purchase process. It happens after you've made your purchase and you live in that home. Then you're clear that you never want to live in a home that doesn't do those benefits, but people buy a home every five or seven years, and we didn't empower the consumer to make a good choice. They ended up accidentally making a good choice if they chose a better than home. And so you're exactly right. That experience, or at least some sort of indicator that there'll be that experience, whether it's other buyers inspiring them, whether it's the handsome boys in HGTV inspiring the buyers to ask better questions, or whether it's experience centers like you experience with a rental car, where when you walk through a model home, you get more than pretty. You get some substance around health and comfort and energy savings that make you a better buyer. But it seems it's unfortunate that to experience those and really embed them in your thinking or your sensation, it takes longer than a walkthrough in a model home. You almost need to have like a review, like buying shoes or buying equipment or 
buying computers, other things, you need to trust someone else. Is there a review system that exists in the housing industry on this regard? Well, buyer testimonials are one of the most significant impactors in other buyers' decisions. And so when you hear from trusted friends and family or just people that you resonate with that that are in the same predicament as you are of being stressed out and looking for a new home, and they accidentally or purposely made a good choice and they got better, that really inspires other people to follow those tricks, to follow those processes, to use those new indicators, right? Because for a hundred years, people have used location, price, and design as the only three metrics that mattered in buying a home. And performance was just available. Like homes haven't been built different to differentiate and performance except for the last 10 to 20 years. And so it's relatively new when you think about how slow the housing market turns over. It's relatively new for buyers to even have this thought or this option. I kind of recognize it as if you brought a smartphone to somebody in 1920, I don't know how quickly they would value it until they got that experience and they reset that expectations. But try to take a smartphone away from a 14-year-old girl today, somebody's going to die in that transaction. And (laughs) I have every confidence in the world that as people become aware of the potential that their home can positively contribute to their quality of life, they'll demand it. As a person in this space, I'm both frustrated at the time it takes, but also inspired that it's so important and it is what I would do for my best friend. It's how I would take care of my family. It's what I'd want for my grandma. And so much of what I do in the building science arena and the marketing arena kind of boils down to stripping away all of the science and the features and really focusing on inspiring people I care about to pursue better benefits. And so when I talk to salespeople, this concept of being a trusted expert who cares is really resonated with me because A, it's what I do for a living, but B, it's what I want my salespeople to inspire our customers to do, to understand that there's tens of thousands of hours of expertise that we've begged, borrowed, and stole from to design our homes. And we did it for one reason. I mean, we spend $50 million a year building better homes. We did it because it makes a better product. All I want is consumers to use things like her scores and other indicators to differentiate between these are good, well, these are better, but I'm only going to buy one home and that's best. And how do I find best in a marketplace in a way that doesn't require me to have three PhDs? And there's many touch points where people can begin this learning process or, or get exposure to this. You mentioned a couple already, HDTV, just people you care about, people you interact with, relatives, friends, your grandma. And what about appraisers and realtors? How do they play in or what's going on in that arena, that side of things? Yeah, those are two of the four major influencers, right? So there's appraisers, there's realtors, there's underwriters, and then there is third-party experts like building scientists. And I think those four really are the keys to massive transformation of the marketplace. So realtors, unfortunately, 19 out of 20 transactions that they oversee are going to be conventionally built homes or resale homes that are built like they've been built for the last 100 years. And so it's very difficult when 5% of their inventory is special or less to really get them to dig into understanding the unique features of a better built, innovative home. And quite honestly, there's a lot of realtors that are intimidated because they're being paid to be the experts and they don't know what a MERV and a SEER and a HERS and an E is and a window. 
And so they kind of shy away from it and therefore they shy their consumers away from it. And that's really disappointing because their role is to differentiate and to help buyers make good choices. So I've seen a lot of the beginnings of a good green building program, energy efficient building program, or sustainability program in local realtor education programs. And I, I certainly participate as much as I can, but there's a lot that needs to be done there to ensure that realtors can differentiate. I think that the best example I've seen is there's a piece of federal legislation written called the SAVE Act, the Sensible Act to Value Energy. You can find it at ASC.org. And the reason I like it so much is it does the exact things that I would do with my best friend if they were shopping for a house. It would require the labeling of a home so that people understand total instead of first cost. That then requires the underwriters to change the value of the home based on total cost, not first cost. So you can provide more funds so people can put in better windows and better insulation and renewable energy because they're going to save hundreds of dollars a month in operating cost. And that means it's available to serve their mortgage. And then the last piece, obviously, is, is if a home has a low HER score, it's easy to find. If you can borrow the money to buy and build a better home, then the underwriting is reflective of that. And then lastly, obviously, the appraisal process, their job is to be able to accurately depict the features of a home. And there's the beginning of green appraisal processes, right? That there's better windows and better insulation and a HERS score and LED lights and Energy Star appliances all being now listed in the appraisal process to help consumers differentiate and value these better functioning appliances. So there's the seeds of change being planted There's just a lot of work to do before I'm comfortable that the average 36-year-old mother of three is empowered to make good decisions in the market. I just heard a story last week from a friend of mine who's in the process of building his own home. He's one of those experts. And he went for his mortgage. Four appraisers turned down the opportunity to appraise his property. I love that, actually. So that might be frustrating, but for the last 10 years, all sorts of appraisers who aren't qualified to appraise just come in and do a comp analysis, and then suddenly you've got something that's got thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 worth of better-than-features getting valued at nothing. So I'd much rather an appraiser recognize that there's an amount of education necessary to properly value these amenities than to accept it and then look at it like it's a 1973 bungalow. That, to me, is a good sign. One of my favorite things is training new salespeople. And at the end of the day, I ask if anybody still likes the house they live in. And if anybody raises their hand, I'm like, well, you got to stay back and keep learning building science because you weren't paying attention. Because once you really understand what you can have, it instantly kind of transforms the way you see what conventional is. And that, to me, is, is exactly what this market needs, is that awareness of the differential between what we're able to do now and what the past has been. The world has changed tremendously in the last 10 years in what we're capable of in building sites. And you talked about those four groups, going back to that appraisers, realtors, underwriters, and third-party experts, the building science experts or people that have, have been touched by building science, perhaps. It seems like someone, and maybe this exists already, I'm just not aware of it, should create talking points from the building science experts that can be directed to those three other groups. And maybe the fourth group also would be consumers, but very succinct talking points that can be getting people engaged mentally with this process so they begin to look for the experiences that can change their perceptions, that can begin to move the market. There is. I mean, there's a couple leaders in each of those categories. The appraisal process, 
there's an appraisal standard AI 820.04, which is pretty geeky, but it's the energy efficient and green addendum. And that was championed for the last six or seven years. And it enables appraisers to get the education, but it also is there to quantify and capture better than building practices and includes this really intelligent way to value renewable energy based on net present value that Sandia Labs figured out five or six years ago. And so there's those little bits of the correct answer out there, but I agree with you. The key is taking that average appraiser and making them aware that they need the education and then pointing them to the solution so that they can participate in those advanced appraisals. And both for realtors and appraisers and for underwriters, the ability to participate more effectively in this growing market share of high-performance homes means that they're going to differentiate themselves, they're going to add value in the marketplace, and they're going to be more successful. So I think it's obviously very wise to those people in these commodity markets like appraisals to create skill sets that enable them to do something that the average appraiser and the average realtor can't do today. The few really good high-performance realtors I know have a big market share in that segment because they can find better homes than the average realtor can for their customers. You mentioned before what's going on in California. It's been a very interesting, exciting, motivating point for you, the 2020 Title 24 revision. But could you talk maybe from the aspect of Meritage and the, like kind of the states that you build in, and maybe are there any regions or areas where things are going on a little differently? The good news is we build coast to coast across all sorts of different climate regions and 21 markets. There's an 80-20 rule generally, which is building science, whether it's cold, dry, hot or wet, the building sciences is stop the uncontrolled movement of energy. And that changes a little between Denver where heat's escaping and humidity's escaping and Houston where heat and humidity are trying to come in. But the building science fundamentals are relatively similar. It's the rate at which municipalities adjust and adopt standards that bring up the baseline. So in California, even conventional code builders are really required to be pretty good building scientists with the advent of Title 24 every three years. You have to build a pretty damn good house in California. And the ironic thing is that buyers then settle for that. They settle for, hey, Title 24 is aggressive. It seems like everybody's building a good home. And then they go back to being a commodity. So I have to work twice as hard because we build well held of code in California, even with Title 24 standards, to inspire consumers to not accept just good enough. But in Texas, where until very recently, they've had a low adoption of the IECC code, which means that you could build pretty basic homes and get occupancy in Texas, the Energy Star program and her scores actually have become a well-understood tool for realtors and buyers because they needed that third-party source to reassure them they were going to get quality. So it's almost ironic that in low-hurdle states, that voluntary programs like Energy Star and HERS ratings have become the symbol that helps buyers buy. And then you get into some of these southeastern states where there hasn't been the presence of a really significant better than builder in markets, and everybody just accepts code. And it's a brand new discussion still, which is shocking after 10 years doing this, that people don't think about low E windows and sealed condition attics and high sear HVAC. And we're pretty blank slate in those markets where we're still inspiring realtors to know to even ask certain questions. I get the full spectrum, 
And I'm really hoping, honestly, because there's such a significant financial impact to the underwriters. They did a study that showed that people in energy-efficient homes have a significant lower potential to default because they've got more disposable income every month. And that those sorts of very fiscally-minded, basic financial processes are going to drive change in a different direction. So that instead of it being a social program where people are voluntarily choosing better than programs, but there'll be people with real meat in the game, like the people that hold mortgages saying, we're going to change the way we underwrite to reinforce these building practices and to make sure that the influencers like the appraisers and the underwriters and the realtors are aware of it. That to me is the stuff that's going to change the world. When I wish that everybody could depend on the consumer, but in this space, there's so much more than the consumers can keep up with. I think that the basic functional, hey, what is the least total cost of a home would drive amazing improvements. And if the banks got behind that and the appraisers got behind that, the market would change quickly. And not only that, it would give tools for people to take existing inventories and upgrade them credibly because they've got this total cost model. I can spend $100 to save $150 in a retrofit if there was a reason to do so, if the market would recognize that value. And when that happens, the housing inventory will upgrade substantially because it's the right fiscal thing to do. Yeah, money talks and you need people to have that connection or all those involved to have that connection. My mind goes back to the experience aspect that you talked about before. I keep on going back to that perception of value. Is there anything going on perhaps with rental properties or even hotels where people can gain that experience perhaps over a longer time than a walkthrough? Do you know of anything going on in that kind of realm? Just off the top of my head as you're speaking about this, the thing that that inspires me is the move towards home automation, right? Now you can go into a hotel and there's an Alexa on the wall and you can talk to it and it'll open your drapes and it'll set your thermostat and it'll wake you up at a certain time and it'll order room service for you. And home automation is this great empowering device. And when we started with building science a decade ago, we were doing dual actuated commodes. And the only reason we did it is because there was these crazy two buttons on the top of your commode instead of the normal lever which acted as a reminder to consumers that we were very thoughtful in the entire way we built that house. And after you button it up and drywall it, you don't see all the framing changes and the insulation changes and all the things that are inside the dishwasher and the clothes washer that make it work better. But you always see the crazy two buttons. And home automation right. <laughs> is quickly replacing that as this indicator of thoughtful design and I think home automation can be much more proactive. And, and I'm excited when I go to these building shows to see it not just being a, a source of music, but it's a, a source of security and it's helpful reminders. And it'll bring the house up in the morning and block the house up at night. But I also think there's this great avenue for education embedded with it. And we're working with our home automation experts to really challenge, can we educate the buyer in the beginning of the shopping process through inspiring displays, but can we also embed the home warranty manual with content that is interactive? So your smart device talks to you in the morning and reminds you to order your air filters and reminds you maintenance tricks. And I think that there's a whole brave new world out there of home automation being a tool for the experts to help impart these bullets that you keep talking about. How do we take this expertise and impact the consumer? And I think home automation is an amazing tool that's in its infancy that will really empower the buyers to be great consumers. And I'm excited by it. And 
I have no idea what it's going to be, but I'm leaning in pretty hard to the possibilities. It sounds like you are. You also shared with me a presentation, I believe you did recently, on the disruption of construction. I did. You want to talk a little bit about that? What do you consider innovation and disruption and what's going on that are going to change things? I mean, your voice sounds very hopeful through this whole conversation. So even though you say you're bummed out, it sounds really hopeful. So tell me about the disruption. I'm excited. I'm just impatient that the future is certainly amazing. I just would like to go quickly. You want tomorrow today. Okay, I understand that. (laughs) I do want tomorrow today. But the disruption is being an innovation and looking at the potential. One of the things I recognize is that there's a growing gap between what we could be as a home building industry and what we are. And some of that is being driven by the loss of qualified trades in the U.S. to build our homes. Some of it is that we use materials that were convenient 2,000 years ago, like a tree, that maybe there's better things to build with and better ways to think about safety and security and architecture. And so disruption is my inspiration and warning to the industry that the Ford quote, that if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would just ask me for a faster horse. And I truly believe that there's the potential to build a significantly better home, commercial structure, or any other type of building than we build in the U.S. today. And you don't have to look very far. You can look to Japan to see that uh, Sekisui spends more on R&D in a year than the entire U.S. housing industry combined. And they do very, very different things about the way they build. And they build like a factory instead of building the field. They think about the generations that will live in homes differently than we do. They provide different warranties because of their emphasis on disaster resistance and the materials that they build with. And they build quicker because of that factory approach. They're not as dependent on skilled trades as we are. And there's no getting around the fact in the U.S. we're losing skilled trades and they're not going to come back. And we have to think about delivering well-built smart homes in a different way. And so my thoughts about disruption is it's not something bad. It's going to hurt because we're going to have to build different. We're going to have to think about design and execution different. But it's always better to be the disruptor than to be disrupted. There's so many examples, and Kodak always comes to my mind that Kodak invented the digital camera, and they were so afraid of losing film sales that they squished the patent until the patent ran out. And then once the patent ran out, other people came in and made the digital camera available and decimated Kodak. And it's such a great warning about where we're at which is we've got great potential to improve our business and pretending that and hiding from it and trying to just squeeze this piece of fruit a little bit longer to ride out the way we built the last hundred years is a very, very dangerous precedent because the innovators can come in and replace us very easily if we're not participating in that evolution of our industry. I'm an ex-Kodaker. I worked there for five years before, and I saw some of it. I don't feel offended at all by your comments. It it was interesting. There's a book called Changing Focus, which talks about the whole story. It's a little bit old book, but it talks about some of that thing, and some of my friends were interviewed in that. So absolutely, it's spot on. Uh, I can't let that happen. A couple things you spoke about here was panelization and modularization. That directly affects what Meritage does. Can you speak towards what's going on there with your company? 
Absolutely. So if you ever looked on YouTube and you, you can watch this hotel go up, that's 54 stories on a corner in the middle of China. And it goes up where they set a room in with a crane that was built off site. And they just walk, there's four cranes, there's one in each corner. And these trucks come in day and night and they just slowly spiral up with these cranes setting in these chunks, these building blocks of this hotel. And this entire hotel is built in the matter of weeks when it would have taken years with traditional manufacturing. And then when you really look at the building blocks, there's a factory cutting everything perfectly. There's rigs and cranes and panels and tables that allow you to assemble it square and perfect and repeatable. And what happens is to execute that, you have to think through all your plumbing, all your electrical, all your attachments, how everything fits together up front and design it in the computer in 3D and execute it in these pieces. But in thinking it through, you make such better decisions with how everything interconnects and where everything flows and how to minimize waste. And the end result is you get a higher quality construction faster built outside of the weather so you don't have all the weather delays and impacts and a more thoughtful design. And so panelization and modularization is putting the discipline of manufacturing into the housing industry. It's the trite thing is, is would you want somebody to deliver all the sheet metal and the paint and the bolts to your new Audi in your driveway and to send a guy out to hand build it in the front of your house? And the answer is, is no, but that's still the way we build houses. And panelization is definitely different in, in the logistics of shipping chunks of houses around on trucks is something we have to figure out. But there's companies around the world that do it very, very successfully, and the end result is better. And it is certainly one of the several solutions that we've got to replace the workforce that's graying and not going to come back with millennials that are more technical and they're in easier to evolve into that sort of kind of panelization trade job than expecting them to be a traditional framer or traditional roofer. And so I think it serves two things is it improves our product and it improves our potential to attract young people into this industry. Panelization is without a doubt going to be the way we build. The question is, is how long do we have to wait till tomorrow? And I'm very eager to help identify and push that forward. But the industry's got to make that move because right now, panelization is at its infancy and it needs a lot of volume to work out the kinks and the rough spots and to get it to be comparable to the craftsmanship that our current trades can build a home to. And then to leverage it to surpass that craftsmanship into something that we can do in a repeatable, controlled environment and that we can truly think about quality assurance today. If something fails in a house, it's what happened in the field that was different that we have to address for that house. If something fails in a car, we look at the design and what failed in the thought process so we don't ever do it again. And I'm so hopeful that our housing market's going to move into that. So when a mistake happens, it changes our thought process and our design and eliminates it from the potential of reoccurring supply cells. You've mentioned here throughout the discussion a couple of countries, Japan and France, who is really leading or is it sort of a hodgepodge of leaders in all these different aspects where you say the U.S. has to move forward? Are there other places in the world where they've got this down better, so to speak? Yeah, I steal and plagiarize from everybody. So <laughs> Germany is doing a great job with energy reduction. So they're doing a good job because their power is so expensive 
with high-performance envelopes, high-performance windows, adoption of renewable energy. Japan is doing by far the best job with manufacturing, just like they did to the auto industry. They're doing this amazing job of modularizing, building components, making them repeatable, making them insertable in, in a multitude of different applications so that they can produce six different wall segments that can go into 48 different architectures and all of them fit together like Lego blocks. And then France is doing a great job on the consumer end where they're inspiring and enabling people to make better choices because they have a total cost model instead of a first cost model. So each of those are kind of driven by the uniqueness of either the energy cost or in Japan, there's this tax implication to when people inherit things that makes them change the way they think about building it. So there's all these unique forces that drive unique business solutions, but all of that has benefit. I would take it all, but I would take surgically the really good things that each of those countries do to surpass their current standard to make the U.S. even stronger. And I think where the U.S. is leading, and I'm really excited about this as well, is we're thinking about the utility grid. As we're evolving all of this, massive stakeholders as we move to renewable energy, as we move to high performance, and the utilities are certainly one of them. And there's tremendous benefit, conversely to what I think a lot of people think about moving towards energy efficiency and renewable energy for utilities, if we do it well, if we really think about grid optimization, which is basically load management, how do we create even consistent service to the utilities? It makes the utilities more successful. It makes our GDP more efficient because we're not wasting all the infrastructure serving the peaks and the valleys. And it actually allows us to take this massive step forward towards more renewable energy and more high-performance buildings when we think about how to use the utilities successfully. And so I think the U.S. has a big piece to play in shaping the global way we optimize energy efficiency and high-performance buildings as well. And so I pick and choose the best ideas, just like when we established Meritage's innovation program. It didn't come from one place. We went around, we collected everybody's best practices from our building practices to other home builders, to custom home builders, to commercial. And we said, okay, per dollar, what's the best we can do? Go. And just designed around just these best practices. And every year, we're inspired and challenge ourselves to continue that process of evaluation. And what we started with 10 years ago, most good home builders do today. And what we did five years ago, most good builders are starting to do. And what we're doing now, I expect the the industry to be fully adopted in five years. So it's a matter of what would I do to build my grandma's house? Not what I would do for me. I'm a crazy building scientist. Lord help us. But that discipline of if I care about somebody and I want the best for them, how do I make choices for them as an expert? And that goes back to this concept we started with being a trusted expert who cares. How would I do it as a building scientist for the people I care about? And then how do I make a business plan around that? And then how do I inspire consumers to differentiate that product from commodities? It's a challenge, but damn, it's a wonderful challenge. It is. It's very fulfilling. In the last little bit here, you've talked about the U.S. grid, utility grid. That to me seems like you're leaning really heavy on electrification. What are your thoughts on that? In other words, not using fossil fuels in the home as an energy source. I've got a very pragmatic approach when it comes to the utilities, which is they're absolutely an existing commodity. And we have to understand that, that there's billions and billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure in the ground that abandoning them 
isn't smart. When you get into environmental science, one of the things you have to be careful about is if you look at the cost to take something that works out after you've spent all the carbon and energy to put it in, you actually take a big step forward. Like yanking out an air conditioning system to put a more efficient air conditioning system in, if the air conditioning system works, is actually the wrong thing to do. You upgrade it as it fails. I have the same kind of pragmatic approach to utilities, which is we have an existing infrastructure that is born on the back of hundreds of years of effort and energy and money and spent resources. And abandon it is the wrong thing to do, but to maintain status quo is also the wrong thing to do. So accept the infrastructure for what it is. Look at what you want 50 years from now. What is the ideal? How do you mix that? Because the sun does go down and solar isn't the solution for everything. So we're going to have to have a mix of types of energy. We've got the ability to look at that to be the lowest carbon source and the lowest impact to the environment, and then have a transition plan. Year after year, decade after decade, how do we phase out materials and equipment and infrastructure in an intelligent, thoughtful way to maximize the benefit? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. So I don't think throwing out natural gas in the next couple of decades makes any sense given the amount of natural gas we have, the amount of black pipe we have in the ground, and it's really efficient use in heat. Now, I do think that as we think it through, I don't know if I'd put a lot more trunks and branches in manufacturing plants in because for the same amount of energy, I would put in renewable energy and storage. But I do think that we've got massive cities with access to it that as we move forward, and we upgrade these buildings that natural gas is a available resource that is still pretty clean, that's certainly better than coal, and has a function for the next generation. But long term, I think that most coal probably is the worst and needs to phase out quickest. Natural gas is cleaner. It's more abundant. It's available in the U.S. It probably has a little bit longer tail while we figure out storage. And in the next 10 years, what storage is today and what storage will be will change. And storage is going to enable us to think about renewable energy much more securely than we can today. And that's going to enable us to really challenge the life and the residual benefits of any sort of biological fuel. And so I'm more than happy to see us coal plants out as quickly as possible. I certainly think natural gas has got a timeline I just think the timeline's a little longer than some of the people that want us to go electrification quickly, just because it's not the end result I disagree with. It's a transition process. I don't want to see us throw away billions of dollars of resources and then spend another billion and then incur that kind of financial, social impact of loss of resources without there being enough benefit for it. So I do think that we have to be pragmatic because there is a limited amount of resources and we do need bridges and teachers and infrastructure just as much as we need to move from the existing utility structure to a better utility structure. And it just can't be done tomorrow. It needs to be done in wise steps. Just to clarify the transition to storage, you mean electrical storage? I do. I mean, I think that renewable energy, geothermal energy, but renewable is largely generating DC current. So the move towards electrification, I absolutely agree with. I temper the urge to move it to it tomorrow. And as much as we've talked about how frustrated I am about the speed of change, in this particular instance, I'm aware of the high social cost of abandoning our current infrastructure too quickly. And so I just want to be thoughtful about that move. So this transition plan or this phase out, 
who is discussing it and where is it being discussed from your perspective? Unfortunately, it's a very myopic argument, right? Where everybody who's got a vested interest digs in on their particular vested interest. So I'm not hearing very intelligent discussion about it, unfortunately. I'm hearing a bunch of polarizing, myopic opinions based on their vested interest. So I'm hopeful that there'll be a Department of Energy-led thorough analysis that includes all the stakeholders and includes the best. I think about what's the quality of life for the average U.S. citizen and the average global citizen, and how do we optimize that as we move forward? So I think that's going to end up having to be not an industry role because of the unique financial implications to each person. But I think it's going to have to be led by the Department of Energy or academia to put forth an intelligent, thoughtful, total financial, total carbon impact over the next 50 years to really have a good policy. Wow. What a wide-ranging discussion we've had here uh, in the last uh, almost 50 minutes now. Do you have any other thoughts you want to kind of convey here covering this topic of how an expert would build a home that they like? So the good news is that nothing we talked about today isn't already in a cookbook somewhere and in easily available to anybody who's interested in either adopting or promoting it. So from a pragmatic building science perspective, the U.S. Department of Energy has a clearinghouse that, because it's a public entity, it's available, it's free. If you looked at the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program, it is absolutely the best standards and the best building practices, regardless of what climate you build in or what financial sector you're servicing. So all of that's available for free. If you're looking for policy to drive effective labeling and underwriting appraisal processes, there's this SAVE Act that exists out there that's bipartisan, that's hosted by the Institute for Market Transformation at imt.org. If you're interested in realtor education, there is really good energy-efficient realtor education available in most states to give realtors tools to differentiate their skill sets. And obviously, ResNet is a huge advocate and proponent of promoting the capturing of the benefit of all this building science through a HER score and driving municipal and federal legislation around recognizing and differentiating the true performance of a home. And so all of these tools don't require people to reinvent the wheel. They require people to align and expect more than the housing inventory has given them for the last 100 years. And the great news is it's win-win-win. It's better for the people who live in the homes and having a better quality of life and lower cost. It's better for the U.S. because we waste less and we have lower operating costs. And so it puts trillions with a T back into the U.S. economy. And it's great for all the stakeholders in between because there's a very successful business plan from builders to utility companies to retrofit companies to solar companies to everybody involved and being a part of this disruption, being a part of driving to better. Because when everybody wins, it's a pretty easy thing to say yes to. It's not a political discussion. It's not a sociological discussion. It's not even an economic discussion. It's just about expecting better and not settling for less. Really awesome. You put a smile on my face right now. I don't know if you can hear it over the microphone, but <laughs> you've done a fantastic job, very thoughtful job and explaining the complexities here and also the driving passions that you have for these changes and but also getting very specific about how they can come about. I like the aspect of the cookbook. 
let's cook up some solutions. Absolutely. So I want to thank you again, CR, for coming on today on the Res Talk podcast. And geez, I think I got to have you back at some point. I'm sure you can have some really important, interesting things to say in the future. Bill, this was a ton of fun and I am so grateful to be able to do what I do that anytime, any place, you let me know. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Res Talk Podcast. We hope you learned a few things from CR Hero, hidden from Meritage Homes, and about the way he looks at things in terms of the way building performance experts and regular home buyers look at the differences between the homes and how things and the trends are shifting and changing. Check out the show notes for some links from what CR was talking about. If you're a pro in the building performance market, surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more or just join the email list to keep up to date. you also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter at ResNetUS. Here's a quote for today by Clayton Christensen. Disruption is a process, not an event. Innovations can only be disruptive relative to something else. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you heard here, or would like to hear a new topic covered, or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. If you're not yet subscribed, please do so. And always, Thank you for listening to the Res Talk Podcast. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn, produced by Brian Orr, and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for Res Talk. If you are willing, A review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk.